Now, as Alex said, we are continuing our series going through the book of Titus and asking the question, how to be a healthy church? How to be a healthy church and why does it matter? It wasn't that long ago that we had many brick-and-mortar Christian bookstores. I mean, they're still around, but they're harder to find. And uh, Sam Amadi, he's a pastor and an author, he made this uh, illustration in one of his books that I thought was interesting, that when he walked into a Christian bookstore, he was always fascinated that the Christian living section, the genre of books, Christian living, was in a separate section than the section on the church. That we kind of created this arbitrary distinction that the Bible never separates. That the way we live as Christians and the way we function as a church, those things are inseparable according to Scripture. Uh, They're one and the same, yet we separate them so easily. So it's not surprising as we look at the book of Titus, and Titus has this uh, section, much of his, uh, or when Paul writes to Titus, much of this letter is wrapped up in how a Christian ought to live, how to live like a Christian. Because it's in this letter that he's talking about how to be a healthy church. And so we see even in that, that these things are not, Separated. This isn't a separate thought. He's writing to Titus to encourage the, the churches in Crete and how to grow uh, to live like Christians. And as they grow in living like Christians, it will build up the church. But it leaves us a big question, uh, and we might be able to connect the dots there, but it leaves a big question in our minds, why? Why should Christians care about the way we live? Aren't we saved by grace alone? not by our works? Isn't that what's distinctive about Christianity? That we don't earn our salvation? That it's not a matter of just doing enough good things to try to tip the scales in such a way that we can be made right with God? Well, you're right. We are saved by grace alone, not by works. But so much of God's word communicates how we are to live. How we are to live like Christians still we can get stuck with this idea if 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 good works don't save us why be good if kindness doesn't get us a a proverbial better seat in heaven if that were a thing why why be kind well titus 2 helps us answer that question it's immensely practical it's not one of those passages where we have to try to read between the lines and figure out how does this apply to our lives doesn't get much more practical and clear than Titus chapter 2. But I want to warn you, there is a huge blunder we could make as we get to passages like this. A huge blunder. And that is seeing it as only good advice. If we see Titus 2 as good advice, but we fail to see the good news, we miss it. We miss the point. And so whether you're a Christian or not here this morning... I hope you come away with good advice. That's a good thing. But there's so much more going on in Titus chapter 2 than simply good advice. That's why we're asking the question, how to live like a Christian, and why does it matter? It's the same reason we're asking how to be a healthy church, and why does it matter? Because without the good news, we can be crushed by the weight of this call. This call to live a godly life that commends the gospel. Because we can't measure up. We can't be good enough. Yet, God 
has called us to live in a certain way. And so that creates for us a bit of a tension. I think we can admit there's a bit of a tension there. But I hope you come away this morning being able to answer the question, how to live like a Christian and why does it matter? And so if you're able, would you stand with me as I read the first 10 verses of Titus chapter 2? And as we considered earlier, Psalm 111, which is one of my favorite psalms, uh, verse 2 in, in Psalm 111 says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. And that's what we're doing this morning. We're considering God's works, God's word, and we're, we're studying those truths. And so I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord when I'm uh, done reading. Uh, and if you believe that to be true... I encourage you to say out loud with me, thanks be to God. Let's hear God's word. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. I want to start where Paul starts as he addresses Titus. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, But as for you. It's a weird way to start a section. Uh, it tells us right away that there's a contrast happening, that we need to look at where we've been. Where have we been before we get to Titus, Titus chapter 2? Uh, because without that, the sentence just doesn't make a ton of sense. But, but as for you... Uh, well, where were we? What were we looking at? Well, the last section, what he writes about is these false teachers. These false teachers, these empty talkers, these deceivers. These, uh, these false teachers who are teaching for shameful gain. They're characterized by the culture around them. And we see in verse 16 a helpful summary. It just says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Those are strong words. Then immediately after, again, our Bibles have chapter breaks and verse breaks. Those weren't there in the original, uh, and so they were added after, and they're helpful. They help us organize. They help us know where we are, where we're going. Uh, but we can sometimes create these distinctions, these arbitrary lines where it's this whole new thing. Uh, but immediately after that, he's saying they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And that's the way we have to be thinking about this passage. And what's fascinating to look at right away is what 
Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say in chapter 2, verses 1, teach sound doctrine. He doesn't say teach sound doctrine. He says teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, there's nothing wrong with teaching sound doctrine. That's exactly what he exhorted them to do earlier in chapter 1, verses 9, when he's addressing the elders. And he's saying, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. So there's teaching sound doctrine. Here in chapter 2, verses 1, he's saying teach what accords with sound doctrine. It might seem like a semantics thing, like an arbitrary uh, difference. But it's important that we see this because what he launches into is this very practical passage. And so he's grounding his argument here in uh, sound doctrine. Teach what accords with or aligns with or what is consistent with sound doctrine. So what he's saying is teach them how to live in a way that's consistent with the gospel. We've talked about sound doctrine being a key word or key phrase through this letter. Sound meaning healthy, solid, uh, and then doctrine. Doctrine is a, a belief or a set of beliefs. It's teaching, so healthy teaching. And this sound doctrine that bookends our passage this morning, we see uh, come again later in verses 10. It says, the doctrine of God our Savior. This is the teaching of God our Savior is the gospel. It's the good news. And so that's what he's grounding his argument right away in. He's saying, teach what accords, right, what aligns with, what is consistent with sound doctrine, healthy teaching. And this is consistent through this whole letter. We see uh, in verse 1, remember we talked about this sort of thesis statement uh, for the entire letter. Uh, He says, this is Paul writing, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect, so that is for the sake of Christians, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Their knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. Experiential knowledge. Remember we talked about that uh, in that first sermon through our series? Knowledge of the truth. This is used throughout the pastoral epistles as just a summary of, of saving knowledge. This is not intellectual assent. This is experiential knowledge that changes the way that you live. As we were going through, uh, every week we have a time where uh, Josiah and Dan and I, and if anyone else is interested, you're more than welcome to join us for this. We go through the sermon in advance, and we we just read through it and talk about it and and make sure that everything makes sense and everything works. And Josiah made a good illustration connection here, where he talked about this experiential knowledge that changes the way you live. He talked about how, you know, people never used to worry about hygiene in the same way they do now, and and. And maybe we have swung the pendulum so far in a certain way, but, but what he talked about is how once there was scientific discoveries about germs, people started washing their hands for the better of society because people knew about germs and viruses and all these things. But until you know that, until you experience that, it doesn't necessarily change the way you live. Someone could reason with you and, and tell you, you need to do this thing. You might think of that, uh, you go outside on a cold day, someone says, you got to wear a coat. And you might say, I don't need a coat. But all you need to do is freeze one time, and then you're going to put a coat on next time. That's experiential knowledge that accords with the way you live. And that's the way this entire letter talks about godliness or good works. It it accords with experiential knowledge, knowledge of the truth. Here he's saying, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Let the way you live uh, be changed by what you know and what you believe we see this again through chapter 1. We see the elders are to live this out. 
They are to be character men that are qualified for the work that God has called them to because their knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. It's their character that is on display to the world, and it's their character that is, is what qualifies them to be an under-shepherd in Christ's church. And then we see the contrast of that. These false teachers, which we already talked about, do the opposite. Their, their life does not accord with what they profess to say. It says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So that is the opposite. But then here he says, but as for you, so Paul writing to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is what puts meat on the bones of this kind of command to live out godliness. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he tells them to live it out. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2, it says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching to show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So he's telling him to, to do exactly the same thing. Show yourself as a model of good works, to live out what you believe, right? to not just talk the talk, but to walk the walk, to teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is a short point. This is only the first little bit, the kind of introduction to this section. But we can't miss this because apart from this, again, we, we fail to see the, the overarching story, the overarching theme, the point. We, we'll just come away with good advice. We'll just come away with an ethics textbook. But that's not what God's word is. There's so much more behind it. It's built on something. And that is sound doctrine. That is healthy teaching. This godly living needs to be built on something or else it has no holding power. Because in life, if you try to live in a way that's in line with Scripture, you're going to face opposition. And that's our second point this morning, that Christian living is counter-cultural. If it's not built on something, if it's not built on something solid and healthy, like sound doctrine, when we try to live in a way that a Christian lives, which is counter-cultural, it'll have no holding power. So Christian living is built on sound doctrine, and Christian living is counter-cultural. Now this is true both for the original audience, the Cretans, as well as us today. And in some ways, this counter-cultural uh, way of living like a Christian is the same as those in the first century. And in other ways, it's actually the complete opposite, but it's still counter-cultural. Now how were the Cretans described? Do you remember in uh, chapter 1... Paul writes, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's quite the description for society as a whole. That's the summary, that's the stereotype. And, and Paul doesn't just sling mud, he, he quotes one of their own, uh, who they would respect and listen to, and, and kind of... Uh, kind of binds them a little bit to the argument because they could say, no, you know, he didn't say that. Well, now they're just reinforcing the stereotype that they're liars uh, because he did say that. So he's, he's quoting from this, this well-known Cretan who says, Cretans are always uh, uh, liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's the context of the society where then Titus is to uh, teach this life that accords with sound doctrine. Christian living is countercultural. It bucks the trend of the society around them. And so we're going to look through. He addresses uh, older men, older women. He addresses younger women, younger men. He addresses bond servants. He addresses all these different people. And he gives them all these different lists. But there is a common thread. And so kids, I want you to listen. Okay, this is just good advice on how to listen to sermons. Uh, because uh, if you hear things that are repeated, that means it's important. 
Okay, and more important than the words I say, I want you to look at God's word and see what's repeated. So as we work through the older men, older women, uh, younger women, younger men, you're going to see some repetition. You're going to see differences about what these commands are, but then you're going to see the same things pop up. Okay, so I want you to listen. I want you to pay attention to see what's repeated as we work through it. And I, I hope that that helps you. Adults, you can do this too. I hope that that helps you understand this passage and I'm sure that it'll help you apply this passage to your life. So they start with older men. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Now we can step outside into our own context and ask the question, what is the stereotype of an older man? I want to be careful here not to offend, but I think if someone did an old man impression, they would say something along the lines of, get off my lawn. Right? We have this stereotype that old men are grumpy. They're opinionated. There's actually a word for this. It's called a curmudgeon. It's a fun word to say. A curmudgeon. It means a crusty, angry old man. Curmudgeon. But that's not how, uh, even though that's a stereotype, even though that's what we might think of, that is not at all what the Bible talks about what older men ought to be. That is not what older men ought to be. It says they're to be sober-minded. They are to be level-headed. It's very different than that stereotype we might think of. They are to be dignified. That is mature. Age and maturity are not synonymous. You might only be young once, but you can be immature your whole life. So older men are called to be dignified. They're called to be self-controlled. They're to be disciplined in all areas of life. His passions, his desires are under control. It's to be sound in faith, love, steadfastness. It's to be, have a confident trust in God. Cares, loves, and serves. Doesn't say, hey, I'm older, I've punched my ticket, now I live to be served. It's to be sound in love. And it's to be an example of patience and perseverance. And so the, it's hard to live out, but th- these commands are pretty clear. This is what I mean. It's not... It's not a hard uh, connection to make. If you are an older man, how to apply this? It's a challenging list, but it's a list that is worth paying attention to if you are an older man. Because older men are to be spiritual fathers within the church. And older men are called to live in this way. Now, this is something worth taking note too if you are a man, but you're not yet older. Uh, because you will be someday. I will be someday. My growing forehead tells me that I will be an older man someday. But this is something to pay attention to. We need to strive to be these men. We need to strive to become men like this. And as a church, this is something that we need to be paying attention to. Because we need to pray for these men. We need to pray for the older men who are here, that they would live out this kind of godly life, this life that accords with sound doctrine. Uh, we also need to pray for the ones who are becoming older men, that, that as we mature as individuals, we as a church would mature. And we also need to pray that the Lord would bring us these types of men, spiritual fathers in our own church, who could build up our church in this way, who could live these lives being sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, and sound in faith and love and steadfastness. We need to be praying for that. Because the church is a family. That's more than a metaphor. The church is a family. We are a family. And what do families have? Fathers, 
mothers, sisters, brothers. Built into the DNA of the way the Lord designed the church to be is this intergenerational discipleship. And we create such a low bar for what the church can be if we, you know, try to be a young, hip church. Because it would be like voluntarily saying, I'm just going to live in uh, the foster system my whole life, and I'm not going to have this kind of stability. I'm not going to have a father or a mother in in the same way. It's crazy to think about how we would want to do that. But as churches, if we fail to see the beauty of intergenerational discipleship, the gift that older men and older women are to our church, we just set the bar far too low. And we work against the health of the church if we fail to see this, that older saints are a gift to the church. And so we should be praying that we would be a church that's full on the spectrum of age and maturity. And as we transition here from older men uh, to older women in the passage, something worth noting is just how countercultural even that message is. How countercultural even that message is, because our society is obsessed with youth. We are just bombarded with this narrative that we need to look like we're in our 20s or 30s for our whole life. That's not the way God designed us to be. God designed us to grow and age and to mature. And then talks about what a gift older men and older women are to the church. And this is consistent through God's word. The Bible communicates a better way than this lie of of just trying to stay young until we can't anymore. Proverbs 16, it says, gray hair is a crown of glory. You don't see that on a commercial, right? Gray hair is a crown of glory. But we fall for this lie that we're supposed to look 25 our whole lives and billions of dollars are spent on Botox and beauty products and not giving time and attention to growing in maturity and in godliness. But God created us to age. And with age can come maturity and wisdom. Again, it's not a given, but it's what we should devote our time and energy for because if we're running away from aging, it'd be just like running away from I don't know, Usain Bolt. Like, you might get away for a little bit, but he's going to catch you. I don't care how fast you are. He's going to get you. And and so running away from aging is just like running away from something that will catch us. But the call here is to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. These are things that we can grow in, in the way God has created us to be, in the way God has created the church to function, to be a healthy church with spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. And so let's look at the older women Here in the passage, I feel a little bit less liberty giving curmudgeon like stereotypes to older women. Um, But we can see that these commands that are given uh, to the older women are just as countercultural for the Cretans, who again, this society that's full of liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, uh, as, as well as today. Older women are to be reverent in behavior. They're to be respectful. Just like the men are called to be dignified, that's how they are called. This is evidence of maturity. This charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Older women are to be not slanderers or slaves to much wine. This is reverence lived out. This is self-control in action. They have, they have control of themselves over their speech, 
not falling for how easy it is to gossip, to lie, to, to create these fabricated stories. And we see that they have self-control over their actions. They're not to be a slave to anything because their Lord is Christ. And they teach what is good. Titus 2 is a case study in the beauty of discipling one another. Older women are to live these things out and teach these things. They're to live these things out and teach these things. And so take note, if you are an older woman, and I'll let you determine when you become an older woman, this is your call to be spiritual mothers in the church. When Paul writes in Romans, in Romans 16, he talks about this guy Rufus and his mother, who is also like a mother to him. We need spiritual mothers in the church. And so this is your call. This is a passage worth taking note of and praying for God's help in. And for all women, this is a target for you to aim for, to grow in this way, to be reverent in behavior, to have self-control, to not be a slanderer or a slave to much wine, but to teach what is good. And as a whole church, again, this is what we need to be praying for, for godly older women at HGC, for the ones that are here, the ones that will be godly older women, as well as any that the Lord may bring here. And this section gives us such a, a clear picture of what discipling looks like. It's an essential ingredient to being a healthy church. And we all need to strive for this, not just older women. We need a culture of an every member ministry. We need a culture of discipling. What is discipling? Well, it's helping one another follow Jesus. It's helping one another follow Jesus. And so I want you to ask yourself the question now. If you're a Christian here this morning, how am I helping someone follow Jesus today? How am I helping someone follow Jesus this week? Pray for God's help in this. Because that's the call. Think about what that would do to a church if everyone thought that way. What could I do today to help someone follow Christ? It would turn the world upside down. That's what it did in the first century. Turn the world upside down. That was the accusation against Christians in the early days. Look at these people. They're turning the world upside down. Man, what a great insult slash compliment. That's what it is. It's this culture of being built on sound doctrine and this culture of helping one another follow Christ. This is the pattern that we see throughout the New Testament. So it's something for each of us to consider today. How can I grow in this? How can I help someone follow Christ today? What can I do this week to contribute to a culture of discipling? And so the older women are called to teach these things to young women. Now, what are these things that they're called to teach? We see in verses 4 and 5. And so, train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So we'll move quickly through these. Train them to love their husbands and children. Why? Why would they need to be trained in this? Well, because it's hard. We don't need a more deep theological uh, answer than that. It's hard to love. It's hard. Uh, relationships are hard. Love is hard. Sacrificial love does not come easy to any of us. And so older women are to help younger women grow in, in this area of giving of themselves for the sake of others. And that's something we all need to do. We all need help in learning that and growing in that. And the call is for young women to grow uh, to be self-controlled. They are 
the older women are to teach them how to be self-controlled, control of, of every part of their life, themselves, anger, bitterness, jealousy, frustrations. They're to teach them how to be pure, to live these, exactly what we're talking about through this whole passage, to live godly lives, holiness, lives that are set apart, fleeing from the sin that so quickly traps It says, uh, working at home. Now, this can seem like a countercultural thing. What, what, is, what are they saying here? Now, this is not a prohibition from working outside of the home. That would undermine other passages in the Bible, and the Bible does not undermine itself. Uh, passages like Proverbs 31 talks about this uh, godly wife, this woman who keeps her home, but also makes and sells and buys and works. And so a godly woman is to be industrious, but not at the expense of her primary responsibilities. And they're to teach the young women how to be kind. This captures so much. Hospitality is likely in view here. Proverbs 31 again says, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. And then submissive to their own husbands. Again, this feels countercultural. And this would have been countercultural to the Cretans as well. But for the opposite reason that it feels countercultural to us today. In the first century Greco-Roman world, women were subject to their husbands. That's just the way it worked. And so what would have been normal in a letter like this would to be say, husbands, uh, subject your wives to obedience. And we can rightly say, whoa, that, what's going on there? That ain't right. But that's not what this is saying, as much as our ears are triggered to think that. What this is saying is that, that wives are to voluntarily submit to their husbands, to love their husbands in this way. And so this would have been amazingly countercultural and liberating to first century Cretans. Right? That they're not, they're not to submit to all men, they're to submit to their own husbands, and they're to do that on their own volition, out of obedience to God. But still, what was a liberating message in first century Crete uh, can sound not liberating to us today. So this is still a countercultural message. But we need to be grounded in Scripture and not grounded in social trends. Because the Bible is clear on the beauty and gift and gospel-proclaiming treasure that marriage is. Husbands and wives are called to sacrificial love for one another. It's the biblical picture of marriage. Husbands are called to give of their own lives for the sake of their wives. And wives are called to, to voluntarily and lovingly submit to their husbands. It's a beautiful picture of marriage, and it's good. But again, sin taints this whole thing, both in our perception of it and in practice. But that shouldn't undermine the goodness of God's created plan for what marriage is to be. It is to live out and model the gospel. Now, if you want an entire sermon devoted to this, back uh, last December, we went through Ephesians, and in Ephesians chapter 5, there's a section on this, uh, and so I would encourage you to track down that sermon if you want more uh, to look at the mystery and beauty of marriage. But then we see that uh, Paul, when he writes to Titus, turns to younger men, and he gives them just one thing. I don't know, there's so many things I could say about this. Why does everybody get a list of multiple things and young men only get one? I shared this a couple weeks ago that Mariah sent me to the grocery store one time to get three things and I came back with one. I think they knew this when they wrote to young men, 
Give him one thing. He won't forget it. This is the one thing he needs to write on his mind. And kids, this is the answer key for what I told you to listen for, okay? Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Have you noticed that each person so far has been told to be self-controlled? Older men are to be self-controlled. Older women, it does not say that explicitly, but it says that they are not to be slanderers or slaves to much wine. That sounds a lot like self-control. Women, uh, younger women are to be self-controlled, and now younger men are to be self-controlled. That is the name of the game for Titus chapter 2. Self-control. And so it's not a cop-out that the young men only get one thing. That, it just captures all of it. They are to be self-controlled. This is essential for the Christian life. Because self-control, I think you know, does not happen by accident. You don't just like, man, I don't know how it happened, but I was just so self-controlled this week. Like that's not, you don't accidentally just slip into self-control. It's the call for a Christian. It's the opposite of this Cretan stereotype, right? They're liars. They're not able to control uh, what they say. They are evil beasts. They're not able to control what they do. They're lazy gluttons. They're not able to control how they work or what they consume. So it is the opposite of the stereotype. But we see that self-control is crucial to living a godly life. Now, just because it's so hard and just because it's something that we don't slip into... We need to know that self-control is possible. God doesn't command impossibilities. It's hard, but it is possible. And we can think of examples, because you might have a caricature in your mind. A young man, uh, and I made a joke, right? A young man can only remember one thing. Like, uh, but we have this caricature in our mind of how, oh, a young man just can't be self-controlled. Well, we can think of tons of examples where young men would exercise self-control. Think of exercise. Right? Young men can be extremely motivated to stay fit, and they can be very disciplined, exercise self-control in what they eat and what they do. Uh, exercise uh, self-control and diligence and discipline in pursuing uh, a dating relationship. Right? There's a lot of motivation there. How about showing up on time for work? If you know there's going to be consequences, a man can be self-controlled. He can be disciplined. And maybe it's even something like devoting hours every week to their favorite sports team. It's a measure of self-control and discipline. So, so we, we fall for a lie if we say young men cannot be self-controlled. Because they can. We live it out all the time. The capacity is there, but the problem is the affections aren't there. The capacity is there, but the affections are misdirected. And so the call is for us to live out a self-controlled life. Older Men, older women, younger women, younger men, we all must live a self-controlled life. And we're going to see this come up later in Titus as well. He's not done talking about self-control. Because self-control, we can, we, can, we can poison the idea of self-control by thinking of it as restrictive. Which in a sense it is, by definition. But we, we get into trouble when we think of it as binding. What self-control actually is, is incredibly freeing. Because it frees us from pleasure, lust, and other passions that consume us, that are not good for us. So self-control, although it seems restrictive in, in thought, it's actually incredibly freeing. And so it's crucial for the Christian life. And it's countercultural. It was in Crete, and it is today. Because apart from self-control, we can be a slave to pleasure and lusts and other passions. But we need God's help. Self-control is, after all, a fruit of the Spirit. And so pray for this, for yourself and for one another. 
Then he turns to bond servants. Now again, this needs some explanation. Uh, this is the same word that we see here for bond servants as Paul used for himself in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, Paul, a servant of God. And your Bibles may translate it as bond servant, may translate it as servant, or may translate it as slave. And it's all kind of the same word that's being used here. It is the same word and used uh, in different ways. But your Bible may actually translate it right as slave right here in chapter 2. Now, slavery was very common in the first century. But it's not a, a often what we think of when we think of slavery. When you, we hear the word slave or we hear the word slavery, uh, we often think of the horrific race-based chattel slavery in the States. This is not what's in view here. Uh, the majority of the society, the majority of people were slaves. Uh, it was not necessarily uh, just a, a horrible lot in life. Some free people actually voluntarily became slaves to try to you know, have a better lot in life, to be able to climb the social ladder. Uh, slaves could own property, they could be educated, they could have huge responsibilities. There was almost no ceiling of what they could do. And, and they could buy their own freedom, they could earn their own freedom. Uh, and so it wasn't a, a life sentence to slavery. Now, could slavery in the first century be bad? Absolutely. So don't hear me wrong, that's like, oh yeah, this is great. Could it be bad? 100%. But was it automatically? No. It was part of the society, it was part of the culture around them. And this kind of slavery that we think of when we uh, think of this race-based slavery for life, that is absolutely condemned in the Bible. You cannot make an argument for slavery with an open Bible. We see Paul address this in 1 Timothy 1. He talks about enslavers and how absolutely wicked that is. Talks about in his letter to the Corinthians how if slaves can earn their freedom, they should. And so there's, there's a consistent thread through the Bible that slavery and the way we think of slavery is absolutely wrong. But it's part of the culture. And so as he's writing to Titus on how to instruct the Christians there, there are Christians who are part of the church who are bondservants. Uh, they, they live their life in this way, and so he tells them how to live. But as we consider how to apply this passage to our lives, we need to think of it more in terms of employment than slavery. as just something completely disconnected from our life. Again, if you want a sermon that's completely devoted to this, we have, uh, on December 19th, I preached a sermon again from Ephesians on just this topic. And so you can uh, feel free to listen there. But as we look at how we are called to work, we are to work in a way that's God-honoring, to work as unto the Lord, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. Pilfering is stealing, you know, cutting a little off the top. But that's not what we're called to do. Our work is to show good faith. This kind of work, along with all these exhortations to older men and women, uh, younger women, younger men, it's countercultural, built on sound doctrine, marked by self-control. But we get to our third point and ask the question, what is this all for? What is this all for? Why should Christians live like this? Well, because Christian living adorns the gospel. That's our big idea as we look at this passage this morning. The Christian life is a self-controlled life that adorns the gospel. A self-controlled life that adorns the gospel. What do we mean by the word adorn? It, it carries with it imagery of beauty. Like a bride is adorned with her gown or like a gem is placed in its setting. Adorning doesn't make something beautiful, but it draws attention to the beauty that's already there. And so how does a Christian adorn the gospel? Well, we see that it, a Christian adorns the gospel by living like a Christian. 
and it doesn't do the opposite. We see that the, in this uh, command to the, the younger women here that if, if we are to live in a way that's out of step of the way God created marriage to be, uh, that that would actually uh, revile, people would revile God's word. We see that the reputation of the gospel is at stake when he writes in verses 7 and 8 to Titus to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Right? So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. He's not, Paul is talking not only about Titus, he's talking about himself. He's talking about the witness of the church at large. And we see that the, the gospel adorning life points to the beauty of the gospel. The gospel that is, we are sinners in need of a savior. The good news that, that we don't earn salvation by being good. We are not good. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And yet God doesn't leave us uh, as strangers. He makes a way for us to be made right with him. By sending his own son into the world to live a sinless life. A truly godly life. A life that truly accords with this knowledge of the truth. That truly accords with sound doctrine yet to be punished, to die the death that we deserve so that we could be made right with God. That Jesus took our place so that we could take his place in his righteousness. That by turning from our sin and trusting in Christ alone, we could be made right with God. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And so a, a, a Christian life is to commend the gospel. It is to adorn the gospel. It is to point to Christ. Because a Christian, by definition, is a Christ follower. And so our lives as Christians ought to live, be lived in such a way that we follow Christ. Our lives don't make the gospel beautiful, but they point to the beautiful gospel. Our lives don't make Christ amazing. Christ is amazing himself. He is the perfect example of humility and submission and care and love and self-control, but a Christian life ought to point to Christ. Sinclair Ferguson is a Scottish pastor. He has a thick Scottish accent, even though he spent a lot of his life living in uh, the United States and pastoring there and teaching there. And he says one of his favorite things to do is to get in elevators with people and just start talking to them. And he says it almost ends the same way every time. He gets off on his floor and they say, you have an accent. Where do you come from? And he just loves to be patient until the doors are closing and say, Columbia, South Carolina, in a thick Scottish accent. And just watch the faces of bewilderment as the doors close. Because accents tell us a lot about a person. It just, it just proclaims, literally, who that person is, where they are from. Now, people are more than their accent. But I think that models well, it illustrates well what can be on display in our lives. And so I have a question for you. As we consider how to live like a Christian, what does the accent of your life say about you? What does your marriage display? How does the way you work what does that display to the world around us? How does your knowledge of the truth accord with godliness? Does it accord with godliness? So we think of examples like when Peter and John, uh, right after Christ ascended and as the church is exploding in the first century, they're boldly preaching, faithfully proclaiming the gospel. And it says that their opponents looked at them and saw that they were uneducated, common men, 
And because of their boldness, said they just, they just knew that they had been with Jesus. That was the accent of their life. The aroma of their life was Christ. And so as obvious as an accent, their lives demonstrated something. And so Christian living needs to be for us far more than a genre of books. It is to be our mission to live a life that brings glory to God, that builds up the church. We, we don't live this way to be saved. We don't do good works to earn salvation. But we do good works because we have received salvation, because we have been made right with God. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. For some reason, in God's all-knowing way, he wants our lives to speak volumes about him, to display his wisdom to the world as clear as an accent. And so what does the accent of your life say about you? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your word. God, we thank you that you have called us to live a life that adorns the gospel. But Lord, we confess how often we fall short. Help us to live in a way that brings glory to you, that the accent and the aroma of our life would point people to Christ. That we wouldn't feel the weight of trying to make the gospel beautiful with our lives. But Lord, we ask for your help that our lives would point to the beautiful gospel. Thank you for Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.